So if opioids aren't the answer, what is the question? I'm not even sure what that means, okay? But the way I interpret it, that's what I was asked. Why don't you do, we have this idea. So the way I interpret it, as you'll see, is that what's the diagnosis, number one, and if opioids have not solved or been effective for that diagnosis, that's the way I interpret this. So I'm going to talk a little bit about opioids, and I have two cases that I'm going to present that will emphasize interventional pain medicine, okay? Some interventional techniques, they're real cases, they're my patients, and so how many of you are mostly primary care pain docs? How many people do interventional procedures like spinal cord stimulators or radiofrequency ablation? Okay, so the majority of you don't, but I'm trying to show you that that might be, not that you would do them, but there might be another answer to the question that opioids were not the right answer to, so. Okay, um, these are my disclosures. Uh, nothing for this particular lecture I can think of being relevant, but I put all my disclosures in what I do anyway. So we're gonna talk about interventional pain medicine, and there's actually a definition for interventional pain medicine, um, and uh, like a government in, uh, definition. I'm gonna talk about concern of opioids. How many people have heard all of this this week already about the CDC guidelines? Raise your hands. Been all, all the CDC lectures? Right, okay. Uh, there's been like, what, a half a dozen of them, I think? Okay, I was actually on the CDC committee. I didn't write them, but I was on the shareholder committee. So I can give you, I mean, I actually was on the phone with the CDC, uh, and I will go over them. I'm just going to, I'm not going to read them all, but I'm going to go over what I think is interesting or things that you have to know about. How IPM or interventional pain medicine can fit into the continuum, even though you may not be doing it, you should know about it and know that it's an option for your patients because it can be much, it can be, as you'll see in one of the cases, it's a very simple solution, okay? And the cases. So the definition of interventional pain ma management is the discipline of pain medicine devoted to the diagnosis and treatment of pain-related disorders, principally with application of interventional techniques in managing subacute, chronic, persistent, intractable pain, independently or in conjunction with other modalities. That's the um, uh, NUCC definition. And now, from the MedPAC report, this is a little more refined. What are these techniques? Uh, interventional pain management techniques are include are minimally invasive techniques, including percutaneous precision needle placement, with placement of drugs in targeted areas, or ablation of targeted nerves, and some surgical techniques, such as laser endoscopic discectomy, intrathecal infusions, spinal cord stimulators, for the diagnosis and management of chronic, persistent, or intractable pain. And one of the cases that you needed to do that involves that in case number two, there's a diagnostic and then a therapeutic phase, okay? So you've heard this problem before. I just tried to, this is right off the CDC guidelines. They say, quote, medicate every adult in the United States with the equivalent of a typical dose of five milligrams of hydrocodone every four hours for one month. That's a lot of opioids, okay? Okay, you know it's a problem. You might not appreciate that for every death, there's 10 treatment admissions, 32 ED visits, 130 people who abuse or addicted, and 825 non-medically users. So 825 for every one of these deaths. Okay, this number is now 18,000 and something. It went up. It went down in 2013 and then went up again. 
So it's hovering about the same. This is right off of, this is a, actually a compilation off cdc.gov. The actual picture's not there, but it was created through a REMS program. So we solve these things with guidelines, 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 guidelines. Those are the CDC. How many people have these, by the way? You can download them, they're free, okay? They're also in my book, in case you're interested in a good book, Controlled Substance Management for Chronic Pain, A Balanced Approach. You can buy it on Amazon.com. Good book. Um, that's what they look like. It's part of the um, MMR Weekly. Came out in March. So this is right, this is verbatim, right? Quoting from the CDC, this is like page one. Okay, intended for primary care physicians who treat chronic pain defined as greater than three months in duration. It excludes active cancer treatment, end of life, palliative care, age less than 18. Rationale, this is right off the site. PCPs manage most of the pain in the United States and have little to no training. Okay, across specialties, this is a direct quote, across medical specialties it is believed that addiction is a common consequence of prolonged use. Some people might disagree with that. Addiction, the disease of addiction, all right? But this is right off their, this is what their rationale is. And that long-term opioid therapy often is over-prescribed for patients with chronic non-cancer pain. So these are the recommendations. We'll go through these. Uh, and all, on the whole, the recommendations are pretty reasonable. How they got there, if you want to get into the political uh, intrigue, is something else. The evidence is poor for all the recommendations. It's um, type three is questionable evidence and type four shows no association. It's like there is, not only is there no evidence, but it's like just, it's bad, okay? The best evidence is level three of any recommendation, okay? Uh, category A is all patients and B is some patients. That's what they have, categories and recommendations. So one says basically you should do other things besides opioid first before find opioids. That's kind of logical, okay, for chronic pain. We added some things. They didn't mention interventional pain. I was a representative for ASIP, American Society of Interventional Pain. We asked that be put in, and it ended up turning into you can do articular injections and epidural steroid injections that are associated with severe complications. That's how it came out. Um, there's a political reason for that. I won't get into it. Um, but non-pharmacologic therapy and non-opioid therapy, you get the picture, right? Before starting opioid therapy, you establish goals. If your patient says, I want zero pain, zero, I want my pain score to be a zero, that's not a reasonable goal. I don't have zero pain, okay? If I don't have it, I don't think I can get you to it either. So reasonable goals, okay? And you should only continue the therapy if clinical and meaningful improvement in pain and function, pain and function, you're going to see that in the case, is there. Uh, assessing therapy, these are the kind of the bread and butter recommendations. When starting, you should use IR instead of ER opioids. Uh, I will tell you that there's at least two ER opioids that are FDA approved for initiation of opioid therapy. At low doses. They have FDA approval for that, so... When opioid, this is the this is the 800 pound gorilla, the 90 milligram equivalent dose, and these are when opioids are started, you should prescribe the lowest effective dose. That makes sense. Uh, you should reassess. Greater than 50 gets you into trouble, and should avoid increasing dosages 
to greater than 90 milligram equivalents a day or carefully justify a decision to titrate. Thank God, or carefully just justify a decision. So this is for initiation of opioids, initiation. It doesn't tell you what to do if you inherit somebody on 300 milligram equivalents of morphine. They talk about weaning and stuff, but they don't give you the guts of how to do that. Um, and there's a, uh, I have a chapter in my book called Exit Strategies for the Pain Practitioner, which is very detailed. Uh, because you have, should have an exit strategy. Uh, you should know how to land before you take off. So your opioid agreement, or your opioid agreement should really say this is a trial of opioids, a trial. It may not work. You may have to stop them, okay? Um, okay, so next uh, begins with treatment of acute pain. The CDC and people on the CDC were pretty, at least the, com the contributors, were convinced that this problem starts in the operating room and at the primary care office or the urgent care. So if you can stop the flow of opioids at those places, you can prevent this problem. Hence, this number of three days or less will be sufficient for acute pain problems, okay? Um, nobody agreed with this on the committee, nobody. Nobody, yet it's still there, okay? I think we got the more than seven, we had to squeeze that out of them, okay? Um, but no one agrees with this. It's just, it's a philosophical discussion. It says the less we start in the beginning, the less problems we're going to have. There's some rationale to that because when you go to the dentist to have uh, a root canal, it's not, I mean, it's painful. It's not like abdominal aortic surgery, okay? You should only need, yeah, you should need a few days, but often you get 60 or 90 tablets of hydrocodone or oxycodone. A lot of opioids are being put out into the supply, and that's what the CDC is really concerned about. We have all these prescriptions. We've got to cut down on the numbers, um, and that's why they came up with this. It might have been better to say, you know, let the lowest quantity possible. I don't know, but this is your recommendation six. Seven, um, be careful, three months, this is evaluation, at least three months. Florida law says you have to do this for three months. Um, Washington has a law. The state of Ohio has a law. They're very specific. If you're from a state that has laws, that has new laws being passed, know your own state laws, because that will trump this, okay? <clears throat> this isn't even a law, this is a guideline, okay? Uh, you should know about naloxone overdose, and the recommendation eight is the prescribing, co-prescribing of naloxone for high-risk patients. The SAMHSA toolkit, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, has very specific indications for the treatment of overdose. That came out like a year and a half ago. Okay. Um, I don't want to dwell on this too much. Uh, review the PDMP. Nine is your PDMP recommendation. Ten is interesting. You're in drug testing. Good thing. Should do it at least once a year or or more. It's important. But then when you read the body of the paper, it says, for example, clinicians should not test for substances which result would not affect patient management or for which implications for patient management are unclear. For example, experts noted that there might be uncertainty about the clinical implications of a positive urine drug test for THC. Now, I, my personal opinion is this is complete garbage. It should never have even been put in there. Does, neither does Roger Cho, according to when I asked him that the other day. If you were at that session with Cho, Argoff, and Stacy, 
Okay, and he told me afterwards I wouldn't have put it in there. Fine. And he tests for THC in his clinic. So I think they really stepped in it when they did this because now you have patients saying, you don't have to test my urine for THC. And I think this was irresponsible. Okay, I don't care if there's medical marijuana. I don't care if the whole world smokes marijuana. It shouldn't affect you're the boss in your clinic. You're going to write opioids. You have a protocol. If you don't want to write opioids with with people using cannabis and you have reasons for it, you should not be saddled by something like this. So I think that's a problem. Uh, this is pretty, most people agree with this. No more benzos. Get rid of the benzos and opioids. They're terribly overprescribed. There's zero evidence that show that they work. Nothing, nothing. The APA, the Canadian Psychiatric Association, National Institute of Clinical Excellence, um, up to date, zero evidence for benzos for anything. For anything. Um, and then they're pushing medication-assisted treatment with buprenorphine, that's your suboxone, subutex, or methadone. So we want to push that, and the Obama administration has done that, and HHS has increased the number. How many people have X numbers? Any X numbers in the audience? So now you can treat up to 200, possibly 275 patients if the bill goes through Congress. That's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. Okay, those numbers were completely arbitrary before. You can only treat 30, then 100. That's like a DEA-generated number. No one knows why. So now you know about the problem and the solution. Let's talk about some real humans here. So this is a lay uh, case of mine, still a patient of mine. She, this is 2012. She gets evaluated, right? We're in 2016 now. 74-year-old female with left lower extremity pain. She was referred to us from another pain specialist to out of state for the treatment of CRIPS. She had the diagnosis of left sural neuropathy versus a complex regional pain syndrome of the left lower extremity. That's what she walked in with. Okay, that was her label. Okay, and she had previous treatments with lumbar sympathetic blocks and even a continuous infusion, a catheter placed into the lumbar plexus with local anesthetic to break this painful cycle. And she had an alleged nerve injury from one of those procedures to the upper part of the leg, which makes sense if you're looking at the lumbar, a lumbar sympathetic that's at like L2. But that went away eventually. But she was not happy about, you know, more blocks. And I could understand why. Um, she just has zero history of risk, alcohol, substance abuse, physical, sexual abuse. Very sweet lady. Uh, she has, she's had no withdrawal. Those of you who heard me talk, I, if you have patients on opioids, you should ask them, have you ever experienced withdrawal? from stopping them because it tells you if you have a hedonically mediated patient and they can be very difficult to manage. And then you have to ask yourself, are you managing micro withdrawal or pain? Somebody tells you, I have, oh, I can't stop them, I die, you know, I, it's horrible, horrible, horrible. That's, in my mind, a bit of a red flag. If they say, yeah, I get a little diarrhea and it's no big deal, then it's no big deal. Okay, but that's a good question to ask. She has never had withdrawal from discontinuing her opioids. Doesn't know what withdrawal is. It's possible, okay? She had a subclinical sural neuropathy. I, we didn't do these tests. This is what we were presented with. There was no history and changes in the nail bed. There was no history of changes in nail beds, color changes. These are called pseudomotor changes, those of you who treat Crips. There was a history of edema and allodynia, okay? She used a TENS unit on the leg despite having allodynia. Uh, she felt she got some relief out of that. She tried duloxetine in the past. She got very nauseated. 
She does not want to be on opioids. Okay, fine. This is what the past medical history says. Asthma, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and constipation. Okay, physical exam. A very cooperative, average size, left lower extremity. Let's go right to the money. Very shiny skin with a stasis ulcer. Allodynia on physical examination, left lateral aspect with mild edema. No atrophy, no color changes, no temperature changes. Good peripheral pulses on both legs. Okay? Motor, no weakness. Gait, she's using a cane and she's limping. Antalgic left. And neurologic exam, she had bilateral brisk patella, absent bilateral Achilles, that's not unusual. And allodynia as described above. Allodynia is a what? What's allodynia? A painful response to a non-painful stimuli. Okay. So these are her medications that she presents with. Nothing particularly unusual here. Here's the pain stuff. Tepentadol IR, 75 milligrams every four hours. Gabapentin, 300 milligrams QID, okay? Everything else is pretty unremarkable. She's taking lubiprostone for constipation, which we're not prescribing. This is what she presents with and some celecoxib too. This is, this is um, the Budapest criteria for complex regional pain syndrome. So if you're going to diagnose this, this is a, these are new criteria, and Dr. Hardin was involved with these too. He spoke here. Um, you have to have, the way to look at it is the patient must report symptoms and must display symptoms. A critical mass of two, actually three, they must report at least one symptom, report at least one system and three symptom in three of the four categories. Now, most of these patients will report everything, so it's not that great. But you should ask about these things. Do you have hyperesthesia? Do you have pseudomotor changes? Do you have sweating? Do you have changes in color? And again, you can't prove it because it's a report. This is history. Okay? But they better display at least one sign at the time of evaluation in two or more of the categories. If they do not, they do not have complex regional pain syndrome. And they give you sensory categories. Is there evidence of hyperalgesia to pinprick or allodynia? Okay? Or to deep somatic pressure? Is there a vasomotor component? Visualized. Do you see temperature changes, measure temperature changes? Do you see skin atrophy or color changes? Pseudomotor edema, is there edema or sweating? Do you see it on your exam? Okay. And motor trophic, is there evidence of uh, atrophic weakness, tremor, dystonia, changes in the hair and nail bits? So if you can meet these criteria in two or more and you have at least one, you have CRIPS. Okay. But if they show nothing here, you don't have CRIPS. They tell you they have everything in the world and they have a normal extremity and there's nothing you can find. They don't have complex regional pain syndrome. Okay. Oh, sorry. There is no other diagnosis that better explains the signs and symptoms. I told you she might have a sural neuropathy, right? You can have an isolated peripheral neuropathy without CRIPS. You can have some allodynia and that's about it. And somebody thought that she might have had that, but when it extends outside beyond the distribution of that nerve, it's actually a technically a complex regional pain syndrome type 2. Type 1 is not a peripheral nerve injury. A type 2 is. Okay. So, so what did we do? We assessed her. We thought she had CRIPS 2. It made sense to us versus a sural neuropathy. But this is important. Sympathetic independent pain. Sympathetic independent pain. 
This is a category of the Cripses where sympathetic blocks don't work and there's not much sympathetic component to the pain. And these are patients that you shouldn't keep doing blocks on because they won't work. Okay? They have sympathetic independent pain. Okay? So they have the other options for them include medications, neuromodulators, and spinal cord stimulators. So a response to a spinal cord stimulator is not a positive um, lumbar sympathetic block. It's a negative lumbar sympathetic block or, or sympathetic block in general. Um, plan. So we switched her to pregabalin because um, we thought it was more bioavailable. It is more bioavailable. Um, and she was pretty miserable. Uh, I tried to reduce the uh, opioid. Okay, She was on 450 milligrams a day. I figured let's treat the underlying neuropathic pain and reduce the opioid. Although tepentadol is a pretty good choice because it's a mixed it's a mixed action drug, dual action drug. Norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor and opioid uh, agonist, mu opioid receptor agonist. So we tried it. We gave her pregabalin and we left the tepentanol alone. She had a little improvement. Then we started, we went with the ER instead of the IR. And now we're at 300 instead of 450 with some improvement, but lots of paroxysmal incident pain. She was in physical therapy. We then we started to try to reduce that temp tepentadol and go up on the pregabalin. More burning pain. We tried increasing the pregabalin. 200, that's about the max at 600 a day over the tepentadol. She wanted off this medicine. And she ended up at about 150 or 100. Actually, this is where we sort of got stuck at 200 a day. And we talked about neuromodulation in the form of a spinal cord stimulator. Okay? We sent her to a psychologist who evaluated her, which is a Medicare requirement, and she was a very good candidate. She didn't have psychiatric comorbidity. She had a good understanding of her disease. She had a good understanding of the limitations of pain management. So she, she's a good candidate. This is the kind of person you want. So we tried a lead placement, a trial. It was very successful. It's about six days. We took it out. <coughs> permanent implant was sent to someone else. I don't do permanent implants. And she now, this is 2013, so it's a year later. Over the next several weeks, we were able to reduce her to pentadol to 50 milligrams IR TID. It's 150 total. Okay? So the perfect world would have been no opioids, right? We tried. We couldn't. But this is what we got. No longer uses a cane. And she's happy. She threw the cane away, and she can walk, and she's happy, and she uses her spinal cord stimulator all the time, continuously, okay? And she's still on exam. I see her every month. Some hyperesthesia, sometimes it's worse than others, uh, but she ambulates normally. She was like this before, and she just walks fine. And for three years, the regimen has not changed at all. And that's... So... <clears throat> the discussion on this, uh, let me just show you a picture. <coughs> Excuse me, can everybody see this okay? Do we need to make it darker in here? Because for me, it looks hard to see. Can we darken the lights a little? Is that possible? <coughs> a little bit more? Yeah, oh, that's much better. Thank you. So this is the lateral view. That's very dark. Thank you. That's all right. You can turn them back up after this. I don't care. Um, so this is a spinal cord. Just a little, yeah, just keep them down a little bit. 
Uh, this is a spinal cord stimulator. This is in the epidural space. That's T7. This is the lateral view. This is the vertebral body. The spinal cord is right here. And you're in the posterior section, posterior column, dorsal column of the spinal cord. You're in the epidural space. Okay. So what do we, what's the question, which is really what's the diagnosis? And is it a diagnosis that is amenable to opioids? It's severe neuropathic pain, that's for sure. Would you agree? Is that particularly amenable to opioids? Not really. Maybe to pentadol, I'll argue that. That'd be the best one, but then again, that's not for everyone. She tried duloxetine in the past. She got severely nauseated, yet she was able to tolerate the tepentadol, which is interesting because it's almost like duloxetine. It's, an SN, it's almost a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Um, what's the differential diagnosis? We talked about it before, Crips versus an isolated neuropathy, right? She trialed several neuropathic agents, which some were good and some were not. The tepentadol is a good choice because it's a dual action drug, and it is good for neuropathic pain. It's FDA approved for diabetic neuropathy, by the way. However, um, her functionality uh, was questionable. She required breakthrough dosing. She just wasn't getting any mileage out of that. And she was hobbling around on a cane. So what is the question? The question is, what's the diagnosis? And if opioids are not the answer, opioids were not the answer. She came to me and was perfectly functional. We would refill her medicines and she'd been on her way. We wouldn't be doing a spinal cord stimulator. What are the indications for spinal cord stimulation? For those of you in the primary audience, so you know, these are the indications, radiculopathy, neuropathy, complex regional pain syndrome, ischemic limb pain, and post-laminectomy syndrome, which can include all of these things. Okay? But remember, ischemic limb pain, your old folks who have like no flow to the leg and they're very painful, this is an indication for them. Okay? It gets tricky when they're on anticoagulants, though. Uh, it ended in lowering the opioid dose, improved function, and she stopped using the cane. I thought that was significant. So we were able to create or come to a different answer with the question. The question really hadn't changed. The next one's a little more complicated, and she's satisfied. So this is a low back pain patient. Oh, my God, how many people have low back pain patients? That's not a diagnosis, right? But it's low back pain, right? 2005. 55-year-old with back and leg pain, mostly back pain. There's some leg pain. Triad treatment consisted of epidurals, lumbar discography, and an IDET procedure. Do you know what an IDET procedure is? Intradiscal electrothermal therapy. You put a coil inside the disc, and theory is that you heat up the inside of the disc and you form a thermal lesion which causes some disruption of the pain fibers. It's like no longer approved. It's, or it's impossible to get this thing approved. Um, but she had it done. This is all out prior to me. Okay? There's occasional thigh pain, which she calls burning. She tried gabapentin in the past. Did not work. We don't know what her dose was. That's very common, right? I was on gabapentin. How much? I don't know. Then I started asking what color was the capsule, and they don't know. Okay. So back pain was constant. Physical therapy made it worse. She is tearful during the interview. That's a little bit con consuming to, uh, concerning to me, isn't it? You're crying during the interview with chronic pain. I mean, is this, there's, a, there's another component going on here. 
a personality issue, okay, a mood issue. Most chronic pain patients don't cry when they see you. They, they look very stoic, okay. If they're tearful, that's worrisome, okay. <clears throat> Past medical history, HSV1, GERD, hypertension, migraine. Denies history of any substance abuse, alcoholism, or physical sexual abuse. I ask those questions all the time. Has, has anxiety. She doesn't really treat it. And I, that kind of explains some of her tearfulness to me and kind of behavior. She was on a transdermal fentanyl patch, a 175 equaling 175 every two days. She was taking Dilaudid up to five per day, four milligrams, again prescribed outside. This is the first visit. Amitriptyline, 50 milligrams at bedtime. Trazodone, 100 milligrams at bedtime. Zalphalon, 10 milligrams QHS. Uh, that's Sonata, by the way, in case you didn't know. Uh, FAM cyclovir for HSV, propranolol, long-acting, once a day, and esmoperazerol, 40 milligrams once a day. Um, she had surgery in the past. She had a cervical fusion. She's had some big surgeries, knee surgery and hand surgery. Okay. Her MRI showed no, I'm sorry, facet degenerative changes. There was no stenosis, no herniated discs. Okay. The hip x-rays were normal. Review of systems, no withdrawal ever, never, because she never stopped her opioids. She'd been on them several years. Never stopped them. Okay. No treatment for psych, even though I have anxiety, which is not getting treated, and I'm crying in the interview. No treatment. <coughs> Excuse me. She can't sleep well, not surprising. And she has some GERD. Physical exam. Restriction in flexion, restriction in extension. This is not unusual. Lumbar cervical area showed diffuse non-localizing tenderness. All over. Mild hypoesthesia in the right L4 dermatome. Straight leg raising positive in the right on the sitting and supine position. But her reflexes were normal. So the assessment is what? What do you think the assessment is? What would you say? Don't say low back pain, please. Okay. Anything else? There's more than one, obviously. Does this patient concern you at all? Is there anything concerning at all? And the pain's a 10 out of 10. And she, you know her meds, right? Okay. Maybe. Fibromyalgia, maybe. On the exam, it seems to be radiculopathy or radiculitis. Okay. There doesn't seem to be an MRI reason for it, but, and she had a little hypoesthesia, but yeah, I'll guarantee you that, a little radiculopathy. Anything else? Is like the whole, think about the whole picture. Is anything concerning you? Yes, sir. Sure. And she's doing just fine, right? No. So I think that's an issue. And she's tearful during the interview. I have anxiety. I've never treated it. What, you know, and I, I didn't add this, but, it was, um, I actually found this out later with her about, uh, I think she had an abuse history even though she deni denied it, but the way she behaved with the husband, sometimes she can pick that up, like sort of uh, the husband's in charge kind of thing. That, that, that was sort of subtle. But anyway, so I think your opioid dependence, I would guess, even though she's never stopped her opioids. So if this was an exam question, I, you couldn't say opioid dependence because she's never had withdrawal. Certainly on a lot of 
opioids, and she says diffuse non-localizing tenderness. Hyperalgesia is certainly in there. Anxiety, depression, we know that. We talked um, radiculopathy. I didn't put those in there because I thought they were obvious. So um, the plan. So a lot of pain doctors will say, let's do some injections, and that'll get you off your opioids. That never works, okay? You can't fix it with another procedure. You have to address this underlying problem of iatrogenic dependence versus uh, hyperalgesia versus even addiction for all we know. I don't know. I can't tell you if she runs out early. This was 2005. This is before we had our PDMP. We didn't have it in 2005. <clears throat> so I was doing bup at that time. I said, we're just going to convert you, get you off this stuff, and see what happens. We're going to see how you do. We're going to reboot your pain system. So windows restart, okay? That's what it is. And that's what we did. So we used sublingual buprenorphine to detoxify her, if you will. We started some pregabalin. Okay. We followed up. She got off buprenorphine in 1.5 months, pretty quick. Didn't want to deal with it. She felt much better. She says, I'm feeling really good. Got her off no opioids in 1.5 months. We added some anti-inflammatory and a little muscle relaxant here, a little of this and a little of that. See how you're doing. My back still hurts. Okay, now let's look at the interventional part of this. This is the way I approach all my patients. I don't believe that doing an epidural equals five or six diluted a day. It doesn't work that way. I think you have to address the underlying problem, and they'll do better with interventional pain if you do this. <clears throat> so we decided that she had lumbar facet arthropathy. Who has said that? She had it on her MRI. She behaved like it. And we managed the radicular component, right, with the pregabalin. We have, we're treating with a little bit of anti-inflammatory. She still has back pain, okay? I think it's fair now to look at the causes of back pain. There doesn't seem to be a discogenic cause. Maybe there is. There doesn't seem to be radiculopathy. An epidural steroid injection, I probably wouldn't be the first thing I chose. So I went right after the facet disease, which I thought was significant. And we did a diagnostic block, a diagnostic medial branch block, not therapeutic, diagnostic, and we went on to successfully do radiofrequency ablation. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this, this is the facet joint, and the facet joint is innervated. This is the nerve root. Let's say, just say this is like, uh, let's say this is L3. Let's say this is the L3 nerve root. That's L3. That's L4. That's the facet joint. The disc is over here. And there's a branch that comes off the nerve root. It's called the medial branch. And it innervates that joint. So this is the L3-4 facet joint on the right side. It gets a branch from the L3 nerve, right? And then it sends a branch to the joint below. So each facet joint is innervated by two medial branches, or and each medial branch nerve innervates two facet joints. So you have to block more than one joint, uh, more than one nerve, to get a joint fully blocked. And I just told you that. Okay? And this is what it looks like. Can we turn down the lights a little bit so we can see it? You can turn them way down. We'll turn them back up in a second. Okay. I just want to point out some radiologic findings for our in the audience. So this is, uh, this, is L, this is L5, L4, and this is the sacral ala. 
This is the L5S1 facet joint. You can see a little radiolucency. This is L4. This is L3. This is the L23 facet joint. This is the L34 facet joints over here. You can't see it too well. But the medial branch nerve sits in the sacral ala and innervates that joint. Okay? And then this is L5. So the L so this is the L4 medial branch nerve because the L4 nerve comes here, sends a branch to this joint and the one below. Okay? So one, two, three, that's a lateral view. You can see the facet joints there. Okay, if you want to turn up the lights, you can. So what's high-dose opioid therapy, I think everybody can agree, did not work. It failed. It's pretty high-dose, right? Um, <clears throat> Opioid-induced tolerance versus hyperalgesia. Both were here, in my opinion. Was the woman an addict? It's possible, but I didn't see a whole lot of evidence. She was compliant with her medication. Some people would have called it iatrogenic addiction. <clears throat> At the very least, it's possible. Uh, we... Medically supervised withdrawal gets people off the opioid and then resets the pain. It's rebooting the pain system. So in the primary care world, you know, you don't just think of the sublingual buprenorphine for addiction. Think of it for the hyperalgesic patients, the patients who are on orbital doses of opioids and they're, they're not addicts, they're, not com they're compliant, they follow the rules, they pee in the cup every month, but they're just doing really crappy. And they have pain all over. This is a good drug, and it's a good technique because you're giving them an opioid holiday, and it kind of resets the pain. And they do tend to do better, by the way. <clears throat> What's the question? How do you induce them? You with with great care. You gotta be. As a matter of fact, I think she had precipitated withdrawal on induction, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was one of my, my beginning cases. The question is, how do you do this safely? Because someone has to be in withdrawal to receive buprenorphine, and the answer is very carefully. If I had it to do again, I would have given her another 12 hours probably. But you stop a fentanyl patch generally 24 hours. This high-dose fentanyl, probably 36. They've got to come in in withdrawal, because if you give a patient buprenorphine who's not in withdrawal, you'll precipitate the withdrawal. You'll cause withdrawal because it competes with the mu agonist and it, and it has less activity at the receptor, so that's appreciated clinically as withdrawal. So, <clears throat> not easy, I grant you that, not easy. I think she had facet-mediated pain. Uh, the medial branch block worked, by the way, so what does that mean? You're blocking a bunch of nerves, usually bilateral, with local anesthetic, very small quantity, like half a cc. <clears throat> we give them a diary, and we call them 24 hours later, and they rate their pain at one hour, two hours, four hours, dinner time the next morning. They must demonstrate at least a 50% reduction in pain over the 24-hour period. We tell them it's okay if it comes back at hour number 25 because we expect it to. It's only local anesthetic. But if it, they don't get that response, they do not proceed to rhizotomy. And that would be destruction, targeted destruction of the nerve with thermal lesioning. And that's what we did for her. Okay? Facet-mediated pain, how do you diagnose it? It's probably one of the crummiest diagnoses because there's really no good sign. People say you have to have pain over the facet joint. I don't know how you can determine that when you do your exam. But generally, Patients will have pain with extension as opposed to flexion because they unload the facet joint when they flex. 
They don't. They compress it in extension. Generally speaking, they get more pain with standing and sitting than they do with walking. Not always. You can also get leg pain with facet joint pain. It's called referred pain. Okay, it's not radicular, but it's referred pain. She may have had that too. Okay, but it tends to be axial in nature or midline in nature. So we try your diagnostic block, successful, we proceed with RF lesioning. She comes to us, I think she's from Canada, and she comes uh, once a year or so for an RF, and that's it. So what, what's the question? Some people would say, oh, you have fibromyalgia, looking at her, right? Somebody said that, I think. What's the diagnosis? Is it low back pain? No, it's something else. It's a, this is a multiple diagnosis. This is facet arthropathy probably facet syndrome, which we found out later and proved. But we have a lot more problems up front. We have opioid, iatrogenic opioid dependence, probably hyperalgesia, tolerance, maybe even overuse. We have a coexisting uh, mood disorder that's poorly managed, okay? And we have, fortunately, a compliant and willing patient, okay? But you get you got to get the differential diagnosis. So if you see patients who come to your practice who are on sort of orbital doses of opioids, and people said, well, they're fibromyalgic, and, they, and she says, my fibro's acting up, I need another, um, <clears throat> you know, three tablets of eight milligrams of hydromorphone. They're probably hyperalgesic if they're not addicted, if they don't suffer from addiction. Uh, I think I made that clear. Chemical coping. Uh, you know what tolerance is? Tolerance is a a uh, physiologic defense mechanism against uh, exogenous medications. You build up a tolerance, your enzyme systems rev up, you dispose of the drug better so you don't get overdosed on it. Chemical coping, how many people have heard of that term? Chemical coping is in a, patients who are chemical copers are, have focused behavior on medication taking and medication use. They're usually recalcitrant in anything else and they will often use their medicines prescribed to manage other symptoms like insomnia or stress or anxiety. And that's like everybody in the country. So chemical copers are, are people that you have in your practice. You should learn how to manage them. And all addicts, every addict is a chemical coper, but not all chemical copers are addicts. Okay. Current meds, uh, this is what she's on today. Okay. Um, and they work. And like I said, she gets the RF about every year or so or when she decides to come down from Canada. And those are my cases, so I'll be happy to answer any questions, discussion. Yes, sir? Um, they come and go. They come and go. She still gets them on both legs, by the way. My experience dealing with venous stasis ulcers and pain is you gotta, uh, you know, you gotta treat the underlying venous stasis ulcer. That has to be done. You'd be amazed how many people don't do that, or patients just ignore it. Give me a pill. So I, I want to, I want that managed, and it, they get secondarily infected. They get, she gets cellulitis once in a while, by the way. That's got to be managed. It's got to be dealt with. And. To, <laughs> um, 
Uh, I would say it would have, but she hasn't bilaterally. This, but this, the left side is is clearly, and it's also outside of the stasis ulcer area too. So, and and but that that is an issue with her. Okay. Yes. Say that again. I can't hear you. What? Sublingual? As opposed to? Okay, so his, his statement was if you use sublingual, sub, sublingual buprenorphine alone as opposed to the combination product, which has naloxone, you don't get withdrawal. But if you use suboxone, you get withdrawal. That's, I mean, I can't say I've had that experience. But that's his experience, so I'm not going to disagree with you. I've just never seen that. So, yes, sir. Say again. Uh, I don't know much about it. No, no. ARP, not AARP. Okay, ARP. Okay, okay. 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 I've been starting to use another device called the Quell. I don't know if you've heard of that. We actually sell them in our office. And the rep came by and I thought, this is like another shtick, you know. And I started using it myself and I had to stop using it because my skin broke out from the adhesive. But the, my skin breaks out from any adhesive. It's not Quell's fault. But the Quell did work. And the theory is, it might be the same theory, it's a little device that stimulates, barely perceptible. You barely feel it, and it goes on for an hour and off. And you just wear it on your knee, right here, either side. It doesn't matter what your pain is. And the theory is that the pain signals must now compete with the quell signals, so it's suppressing the pain signals. That might work the same way. If it's, if it's an electrical stimulation, do they feel it? Yes. Okay, so it's kind of like countercurrent irritation then. It's like the gate theory. Well, you, you barely, you, when you titrate it, you turn it on, they tell, them to, they tell you to say, as soon as you feel it, tell me. And, that, and like, you might not even feel it during the day. You might just feel like this tiny little thing. Most people don't even feel it. They ignore it. <clears throat> no, it's very different. Spinal cord stimulation. The principle is essentially the same. But these are all gate theory models of gate theory of pain, which Wall and Melzack developed in 1965. That you're... You're sending in competing impulses through beta fibers, which are sensory fibers, they're not pain fibers, to compete with those pain signals that are carried through A delta and C fibers. A spinal cord stimulator is much more, uh, much more geared to the central nervous system, really, in the posterior pathways, the dorsal pathways. And usually you feel it, although there's a new spinal cord stimulator device called a HF10, which is high frequency, which is paresthesia-less. They don't feel it. It's amazing. I, we'll see what the evidence is on it, but you basically implant it. Usually we put these things in, we turn them on, and the patient says, oh, yeah, I feel it in my leg. It feels good. Or I want a little more on the left. I want a little more on the right. Can you turn it up? Can you turn it down? Can you move it down? I want it more on my butt. And they feel it, so you map them. With the Nevro device, HF10, they don't feel anything. You just put it in a T7, turn it on, and go home. 
the high frequency, it's at 10,000 hertz. Theoretically, they do not, it is, there's no sensation to the dorsal column stimulation. It's a fascinating concept, actually. So.